I direct your attention this morning back to 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. 1 Peter, chapter 5. We shall read verses 5, 6, and 7. Hear now the word of our God. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, this is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help now. As Daniel interceded for the sake of his people based on your word, humbling himself in confession, we acknowledge now we must humble ourselves. Anytime we hear this, your word, our temptation is to make our word as important as yours. And worse, to make our words more important. Forgive us, Father. Help us now by word and by spirit, according to your promise in Christ's name. Amen. College student had the following sign on his dorm room door. No, I am not conceited. Bold. Underneath in smaller type, though I have every right to be. Alistair Begg, many of you have heard Alistair preach, Tells about being invited to bring some inspirational messages to teachers for their in-service days back in the late 80s. On one occasion, he spoke from Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And then he said, I suggested that our culture's preoccupation with brains, bodies, and bucks needed to be re-examined in light of the product emerging from our homes and schools. I was always interested to see their program from the day and to note the areas of emphasis in child development and teaching strategy. On each occasion, I searched in vain for any hint that humility might be considered as a necessary prerequisite for an effective education. Rather, the drift seemed to be to encourage children to write papers on such subjects as why I am important or why I love myself. Far from encouraging the children to see humility as a positive attribute to be cultivated, too often it was depicted as a liability to be avoided. Having called the elders of the church to do their task, Peter now 
having exhorted them to care for the flock of God, turns to the flock and exhorts them about their attitude toward leadership. Pride is our original sin. The sin of our great enemy, the sin of our first parents. Pride. And pride is so insidious in our lives, it shows up in ways that we simply don't recognize. And you don't hear much about humility. Looking back, Thomas Brooks, one of my very favorite Puritans, had a little book, The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. These were meditations on Ephesians 3.8, which says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in that sermon and booklet, I think this was originally a sermon or series of sermons, he had in it, now catch this, he described eight properties of a humble soul. Eighteen properties of a humble soul. Eight motives to provoke humility and nine directions to keep us humble. Now lest you think that excessive, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. We need to hear lots of properties about humility. We need lots of provocation to be humble. And we need lots of direction to actually get it done. We ignore Isaiah 66 too. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I remember Peter's writing to a suffering group of churches. They have suffered. They're about to suffer more. And part of what happens in suffering and in relationships in churches is we let our pride and resentment overwhelm any sense of humility. You know, it's, it's, it's always the test, isn't it? Whether you're willing to serve and truly will serve, the real test is not when you make the statement, it's not when you're set apart, it's not when you agree to do it. The test is always this, when somebody treats you like a servant. Then you find out whether or not you really want to serve. God uses suffering to lead us to trust Him. He uses things that assault our pride to cultivate something He considers so valuable that He will go to extremes, in our view, to get it done in us. First, humility is commanded. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
Now, he starts with a specific group who have a real hard time with humility. Now, some translations put it young men. Others just say you who are younger. And the fact is the wording will support either one. But let me just do it generically in this way. When you're young, it's hard to be humble. Because when you're young, you haven't lived long enough to realize you're not wise. I said that as nicely as I could. Youthfulness and pride seem to walk hand in hand. Leaders can't lead if those who are led will not follow. And as Calvin said, nothing's more contrary to the disposition of man than subjection. We don't like it. I will say over the years that other than my eschatology, which has caused some people indigestion, one of the things that has had people as upset as any is any time I've talked about the issues of submission in Scripture. People get upset about that. We talk about children being subject to their parents. Now, the kids don't get much chance to object, but you can tell it's not particularly popular, and I think it also kind of stands out that parents don't even much want to endorse the idea that children ought to be subject to them. Much of the crisis I think we see today in families is parents have quit parenting. They've turned it into a committee project with the least qualified having the biggest say. Hmm. Oh, well, it shows up when you talk about it for wives. It's difficult to think in terms of submission. And it's difficult when you talk about elders leading in a church and then there being submission. Now, folks, let's please, 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 please. Can authority be abused? Undoubtedly. But there are limits on authority, and the Scripture addresses that as well. Remember this underlying principle. There is no, hear me, there is no absolute human authority. None. Nobody has absolute authority short of God Almighty. We are to humble ourselves. It's not easy. And then he puts it as a general command. Look at his language. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humility, by the way, that includes elders. That includes leaders of any kind. It's a general command. There's a new garment to wear. Humility. Now, you know why we got to put that one on? Because we keep wearing the other one. Pride. Jesus comes to us and says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your soul. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Or Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, folks, we struggle here, and then we struggle with what I'll call fake humility. And we're not exactly sure how to handle all this. We don't want to be we don't want to be phony. We don't want to be plastic people. But we also don't want to tread into pride. Now maybe you have some excellent natural abilities or gifts. Wonderful. Here, here, I'll do it this way. I have a pretty good voice for preaching. It's got some depth, some resonance, and a more than ample capacity to support it. Amen. I can take absolutely no pride in any of that because I didn't do that. God did. It would be foolish for me to be proud of something over which I had absolutely no control. God gave that. It's His gift. Can you do things to improve the gift? Certainly you can, but where does that come from? Hmm. Well, I, I got an education. I'm smart. <laughs> Bravo. Why? Are you smart? How did you get enough capacity for that to happen? How is it that you found yourself in a place to take advantage of that capacity? Hmm. Paul, when he exhorts the Corinthians about their divisiveness, says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Remember the Lord's words to Moses. Moses and I'm always amazed at this exchange between God and Moses. Moses looks like he talks pretty good right there. But what's his objection? Lord, I, I can't talk in front of people. I don't have to talk. Get somebody else. I can't talk. And what's the Lord say? Who made the mouth of man? Lord, still need to get somebody else. Fine, get Aaron. He can talk. I'll talk to you. You talk to Aaron. My brothers and sisters, here is the reality. You and I, when we are granted whether natural ability or a gift from God, specifically in spiritual matters, we can improve them. We can work with them. But once again, hear this. God gives the gifts we are to use them to His glory. But He is the one who grants it. We should possess in ourselves, clothe in ourselves, humility. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary tells that at one point, slaves in the ancient Roman world would often have to knot a scarf or an apron over their clothing to distinguish themselves from freemen. Remember in the 
first century world in Rome, slavery was not a racial issue. It was purely you were conquered or you'd sold yourself in so much debt that you ended up a slave. There was no distinction by race. It was purely a matter of status, and they would articulate the status by either an, uh, uh, an apron around themselves or a scarf. You and I are to tie humility on ourselves so clearly that it is seen that we give the glory to God. Humility is commanded. And it's not just commanded, there's also a warning. Pride is perilous. Hear these four words. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. We saw it in the responsive reading. Good old Nebuchadnezzar, is this not great Babylon? Look what I did. For the majesty and glory of my name. <laughs> and the Lord says, fine, you're a cow. Hmm. Whether you think of Nebuchadnezzar, whether you think of Pharaoh, the reality is God opposes pride as a reprehensible characteristic of creatures made out of clay. We rear back and we say to the Almighty, why have you made me thus? Who do you think you are, God? You owe me an explanation. Things are hard. Things are bad. I'm doing a good job down here. Why aren't you nicer to me? Over and over again, people who never give a thought to blessing or praising God for His kindness will accuse God regularly if it looks like He's not as kind as they expect Him to be. Somehow, God owes them an explanation. No, He doesn't. God is not a debtor. Have you ever considered the very nature of the incarnation of the Son of God is a slap at the pride and power of man? God selects an insignificant girl, part of a conquered people, and not in the centers of power, not even the capital of this conquered people. And this our incarnation wasn't announced to those who best knew their own scriptures, but to the least understanding and the least noticed. The Savior is not trained by the approved teachers of his own day. In fact, he's not even trained as a teacher, but as a carpenter. His birth, his life, his death, all are assaults on the pride of man. This is the very nature of the gospel, my friend. Some of you don't know Jesus. and You, you, you sit here and say, well, I'm not sure it comes up to my intellectual standards to believe this thing. That is not God's problem. That is yours. Well, I don't know if I want to give up. Fine. But let me explain to you, my friend. Your rebellion doesn't harm God. Your rebellion doesn't take the Lord off of his plans. And the Lord doesn't in some sense lose sleep because you're rebellious. 
Hear the words of the apostle in 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. O Christian, hear me, and keep in mind, the Lord will bring down all the actions of men. Please understand that God will undo all of this rebellion. He shall crush it. But remember, this is targeted at Christians because Christians still fight pride. It is so much a part of us. We struggle with it. And God will, for your good, humble you. Oftentimes Christians will say when bad things happen, well, why is this happening to me? Is God punishing me? And of course, part of the answer is God may be chastening you. But the chastening may not be for a particular sin action you've taken. It may be to train you in humility. It may be to show you how little you actually trust. It may be putting you in the dust. Christian, can you understand what I'm saying to you? that some of the greatest things God will do in your life will not be out of triumph, but out of destruction in seeming despair. When you're at your lowest. See, you get low enough, you get very dependent. And God values humility. He always opposes pride. I know, this is, well, great. Humility is commanded, pride's perilous. That seems kind of hopeless. But you see, along with humility being commanded and pride being perilous, the other thing you see in the text, God is gracious. God opposes the proud, but, oh, always pay attention to those little conjunctions. Gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Hear this, my friend. God is gracious. God is gracious to those who are humbled, to those who need grace. God's reaction to your humility is always more grace. See, here's the thing. We don't like to be humble. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to have a situation where somebody's over us and we have to listen to them. We don't want that because what we value isn't humility. What we value is arrogance and pride. We, we sit here and say, well, that, that, that so-and-so's over me and they're not as smart as I am. I'm going to listen to them because they've got the title. I was not even necessarily on the job. 
Parents, if you haven't recognized this yet, one day your children are going to think you probably need to be committed to a mental institution or at least have somebody look after you because you're not very bright. It doesn't occur to them that having lived a little while, you may know things they don't know. That goes with the territory. And young people, it's fine. I'm not upset with you because I know what's coming. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. It can show up in the church. Now, folks, I, I hugely believe in accountable leadership. You know that. I want there always to be clarity in what is done. But you've got to understand there are times that you could possibly say, well, I don't know what the elders think they're doing. I don't know what's going on here. The question is, there's enough humility to follow until you see more of an outcome. No claim to infallibility. God is gracious to those who know they need grace. Humility. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. Isn't that intriguing? Here's one of the places we're told this is something we naturally do. You can humble yourself. You want to. Okay, then God will humble you. One of two things are going to happen here. You either humble yourself or God humbles you. May I tell you that humbling yourself will be easier on you. God's hand, his mighty hand mentioned here. God's hand is a way of expressing God's power. In the Old Testament, it was always a way of speaking of God's power. The hand is what we use when we take action. This is what you see here. God's hand is God demonstrating his sovereignty, his power over our lives. Job will say it this way. Job 6, verses 8 and 9. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Job is so bad off, he just wishes God would kill him. But he believed in the power of God. God's power over believers' lives shows even when his people are persecuted. He's in control no matter what happens to us. Do you actually believe that, Christian? I know, we're known as a church that believes in the sovereignty of God. I'm here to tell you, confessing that is not the same thing as living that. When stuff in your life goes sideways, when it doesn't turn out the way you want it to, in fact, when it turns out a way that you, in some sense, have dreaded, is God still good? Is God still sovereign? The New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace had this to say, when we worry, when we're overly critical, which is simply a covert assertion of our sovereignty and pride, when we do not acknowledge our profound neediness or even helplessness before God, we're not being humble. But rather than knuckling under, now hear these words, rather than knuckling under, God wants us to cast our cares on him. Did you see that? Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may exalt you. Cast your cares on him. Why? He cares for you. 
Now, isn't, isn't our immediate reaction when suffering comes or we're told to do something by somebody in authority or we're given leadership we don't want, it's, now, Lord, really, this cannot be good. Mm. True biblical humility is not being a doormat for an omnipotent taskmaster. There's no negative appeal here. This is not a command to be a tail between the legs lap dog. Biblical humility is not self-deprecation or a dispensing of our self-esteem. It's just the opposite. It is the recognition that our worth is to be found in our maker. The command is positive. We have a loving father who desires us to come to him with all our shattered dreams, our disillusionment, our dashed hopes and fears. I love the way he phrased that. You do understand, folks, the Lord's Christian, the Lord's at work in your life. And he's doing it even in things that are uncomfortable and hard. And I know some of you say, well, Fine, New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace. What does he know about problems? He talks further, and this goes back to the early 90s, as I recall. Here's what he said. It's not cool in our culture to care or to be cared for. It's not cool to admit your inabilities or frailties or fears. Being cool is being invincible. Being cool is what sells blockbuster movies. Being cool is ultimately a fantasy. <laughs> Radically divorced from reality. I know, and here are his words. I know what it means to be cared for. I know what it's like not to be cool. It tells about being in an emergency ward of two different hospitals, an ICU for a couple of days, diagnosed, re-diagnosed, veins collapsing, spinal taps that didn't take, had to have a wheelchair or a walker most of the time, Moments of paralysis, episodes of violent shaking and paranoia and hallucinations, the most recent being just a few hours before he wrote this. All because of some unknown virus that's attacked my central nervous system. I've been brought down by a bug so small it can't be detected by a microscope. My invincibility has been penetrated by the tiniest of enemies, the weakest of foes. The doctors were baffled, no idea. Finally sent him home. My kids are scared. My wife's exhausted. This doesn't sound like victorious Christian living, does it? At least not the way many describe it. I'm not cool when my body jerks 30 times a minute for 20 minutes at a time. And when I'm not having an episode, my body still jerks hundreds of times a day. I'm not cool when I have an ongoing killer headache that keeps me from standing upright. I'm not cool when I go days without shaving because I have a shunt in my shaving arm forcing me to use the other awkwardly to shave and miss spots or cut myself. I'm not cool when I need my wife to bathe me and shampoo me. I'm not cool when I put on weight because I can't exercise since my legs don't work and I'm not allowed to bend my arm. But in all the lack of coolness, my dear wife, my precious Patty, loves me, cares for me, calms me down when I'm hallucinating. 
the trains coming at me or lavas engulfing my friends or I'm fighting Germans on D-Day or a dragon in medieval times. I'm certainly not, e not cool then. I'm not even lovable. Yet she loves me. She cares for me. We've decided some time ago I'm a high-maintenance husband. <laughs> but now after 23 years of marriage, this was again some time ago, I've become at least temporarily a full-time job. Here now, Thomas Brooks, remember this. All the sighing, mourning, sobbing, and complaining in the world doth not so undeniably evidence a man to be humble as his overlooking his own righteousness and living really and purely upon the righteousness of Christ. For a man now to trample down his own righteousness and to live wholly upon the righteousness of another, this speaks out a man to be humble indeed. My friend, the text tells us God gladly hears our prayers. This is not a greeting card statement. God wants you to come knowing that he's trustworthy. The word here for anxiety, casting all your anxieties on him, is a word that means to be drawn in different directions. And isn't that kind of what anxiety does? It pulls at us here, pulls at us there, goes this way, goes this way. And just about the time I killed that arm of it, the other one comes up and slaps me in the back of the head, and I deal with that one for a while. And then the other one, casting all your anxieties, for he cares for you. This is my Father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler. ponder as I draw this to a close. You know, the last couple of years, we've dealt with this pandemic. And I haven't noticed that it's done much to humble us. A bug we can't see without special equipment basically locked the world down. Now, I know some, oh, good, we're going to talk politics. No, we're not. I'm not talking about the propriety of anything that was done, but my friend, for you to say that the last couple of years didn't get the world's attention would be the height of foolishness. But you know what it didn't seem to do was make any of us any more humble. Oh, I think it may have done some good in believers' lives. But overall, the world has not seemed to me to learn anything from this. Of course, the next thing, I just, it'd almost be laughable, but apparently it's a real thing. The next thing they're worried about is monkeypox. Is that going to get anybody's attention? David Strain pastor in Mississippi. Surely part of God's design for us during the pandemic and His providence, think about it. This microscopic little bug has laid us low. 
For all our cleverness and sophistication, for all our technological accomplishments and our innovations as a society, this invisible virus has stripped us of all grounds for boasting. My question is, when the dust settles and we get on the other side of the crisis, will America be humbled under God's mighty hand? Will the church be humbled? Will I be? Will you be humbled under God's mighty hand? As Christians, you know, we confess these afflictions are not random events with which God has nothing to do. Hard and mysterious though it may be, we know God ordains whatever comes to pass. Job's wife taunts him in Job 2. Why not curse God and die? Remember his response? Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Can we say in these hard providences, whatever my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. I will be still whate'er he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent, his hand can turn my grief away, and patiently I await his day. Humble. Not a fake, hang your head, dig your toe in the dirt. Oh, shucks, I ain't nothing. the actual recognition that our lives are in his hand that what he ordains is right even when I can't understand it and that I'm to humble myself under that hand friend if you're not a Christian here's the beginning of salvation here's the open door it begins with you acknowledging you are a sinner who cannot please a thrice holy God in any way on your own. Is that humbling? You bet, and it is salvation. When you know you cannot save yourself and must trust in another, that's when you're ready to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. May we rest in that certainty. May we joyfully know that we are His. Oh, Christian, you don't have to go seeking for ways to be made humble. Open your eyes. Pay attention. Have some deep suspicions of your own self and humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Our Father, Help us that we might learn to cast all our anxieties, everything that tears us every direction, that pulls us all sorts of ways. Lord, may we cast all of those things on you. Father, we, we have pride so deeply embedded in us. We know that the Spirit of God has regenerated us if we're Christians. We 